Hi, this is Thomas DePaulo. Hey, this is Melon Bread. Hi, this is William Roy. Hey, this is Jake Cook. This is Dole. This is Kevin Ham, and welcome to the Green Box. Well, welcome everybody. We have a guest with us tonight. Uh, you may remember him from such parts of the Delta Green Agents Handbook as some skills and some equipment and uh, the complex. Please welcome uh, Christopher Gunning to the show. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So do we want to uh, be nice first or do we just want to immediately throw rocks at all the stuff that he did that we don't like? Well, I, I, I don't. Here's the thing. I don't know where to aim the rocks because, uh, uh, Chris, Mr. Gunning, um, why don't you tell us uh, a bit about yourselves because not all the listeners and indeed not all members of the podcast uh, know yet. Sure. Um, so, yeah, that's a good question, how to characterize myself. Um, I've been associated with Delta Green for... Well, I was brought on for the, the new edition. Um, I've worked with Shane and Dennis now a couple times and, and Scott. Um, but the best way I think to characterize myself is kind of the, uh, the B team for the, uh, the core Delta Green writers out there. Um, I've been, I was involved in the creation of the skills, the agencies, some of the stuff on the bonds um, in the core agents handbook, as well as consulted for... Um, making the program and Delta Green as realistic as possible um, while still keeping to the core themes. And then, um, as many of you know, the uh, the complex has just recently dropped for those of you that backed the uh, Kickstarter. Um, and that's been my baby for the last four years. Um, and I'll be happy to talk about the, the pains and tribulations that went on with that. Um, and then I've been involved with uh, drafting the uh, the first very very rough draft of uh, March technologies for Deep State. Otherwise, um, I've been a freelancer for the better part of twenty years. I've got credits with Privateer Press, White Wolf, uh, DreamPod Nine, and uh, Son of Oak most recently. And in my day life, I am a federal government uh, bureaucrat, which is why I got tapped to do the agencies. I traditionally live overseas. Um, the last couple of years, I've lived uh, domestically in Northern Virginia, and um, I'll just be—I I work for the Department of State. Um, uh, so y'all worked on the uh, actually. Sorry, do you do you have a, 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 a an in for this? Do you have a way that you you'd like to start? No, not particularly. You guys are welcome to to pelt me with stones. In that okay, in that well, in that case, I think we'll 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 um, dig a little deeper on. Uh, you worked on the Delta Green um, on the. Agent's Handbook, you said, and on uh, presumably, if you're if you're the guy behind the bureaucratic structure of the program on the Handler's Guide, on various other materials for the new Delta Green, um, you said that you were brought in for the new edition. Yeah, and uh, now I was just going to say, so I I've known uh, Shane uh, Ivy uh, for for a number of years right now, and I reached out to him years ago. No, no, not all. Actually, I um, Shane's a I, you guys have encountered him before. Uh, you know, oh, we've met him, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. here... The, the we had to that, flee because our level wasn't high enough. <laughs> the thing about Shane and the Delta Green crew that has been really cool is, you know, I, I started out as a fan, you know, and um, 
I volunteered my services. Shane took me on and, and gave me a couple small projects, and, and I did well enough that he kept giving more and more and more and more. But um, in terms of like Shane and Dennis and Scott and that group, which again, you guys all know, but on the, the business side of things, Shane is easily the best editor I've worked with. And I've worked with a handful of, of really, really good ones. Um, and, and that's the thing that I don't think a lot of people associated with Delta Green get to see is how hard that group works on producing really good stuff. I mean, we all see the books afterwards and it's neat seeing my own writing involved. Um, but in all honesty, like coming as an outsider, as a fan initially, and now being kind of on the inside, um, the level of professionalism that come that that's operating within um, Arc Dream in generally and 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 Delta Green specifically is off the charts better than nearly any other experience I had. The only other exception is um, when I worked on White Wolf stuff with Justin Achille. Uh, the the number of really quality editors and writers and business people, like people that have all of that stuff in their head and are willing to invest the time to make that work is super small. And as fans of Delta Green, having that the Delta Green partnership at the head of Delta Green, we're really, really lucky. This is this is important to hear because it's very easy for us to throw rocks when stuff's late. Like, you know, complex keeps getting pushed back, uh, impossible landscapes is 2020 now. And so it's easy to say, hey, it is kickstarted. Where is it? You got a second Kickstarter going and you haven't finished the first one. But the results are always really good. Yeah. And that's been one of the things that I've really enjoyed being part of is I've been associated with some disasters of projects. And the, these are not them. Um, they do have their issues and stuff like that. But I, I can tell you guys, being on the inside and seeing at least some of the emails that are going back and forth um, as, as a freelancer who has seen, you know, good projects and bad projects, this is way on the side of good projects. Say no Barkley too. <laughs> Part of that is, I'm not saying that this isn't true of other freelancers and role-playing game writers. This is really their passion. I mean, they've been working on Delta green since its inception, at least three of them. So they, they've put a lot of time to, into this and I think it comes out all good in the end, no matter how much we complain about deadlines. You know, and the other thing, though, that's really interesting about that is they haven't give up on this, right? Like, I have a hard time sometimes running my own games, you know, week to week to week. You know, the longest game I've ever run was two years. And we've been getting quality stuff, you know, for Delta Green for, gosh, now, what? Delta Green was originally 94 or so? And we're still getting really, really quality products that the, the individuals that are behind Delta Green... Um, have remained dedicated to that vision and can continue to invest their time and their effort into that. Um, we're pretty lucky, you know. It's it's outlasted how many other game lines not named Call of Cthulhu. I think it's interesting to realize or to think about if you look at a a setting like uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, where it can be somewhat easy to write for because you're inventing an entire world and you can just change the rules or make the rules up as you go. But the green has to exist like in our reality. So you can't just say, well, we'll just make this new agency up to fit. If you're going to write about the ATF, you have to make it realistic enough that people aren't going to say, why did you make it different, but also make it fit in the game. And that's a lot more challenging than I think people realize. So you're hitting on something that has been my my pain for the last couple of years. So the complex and the redacted files were born of me 
during the Kickstarter and, you know, things were going gangbusters and I wanted to help out. So I contacted Shane and I said, hey, Shane, you know, I'd be willing to do more agencies if it continues to, to help push, you know, excitement and interest in it. He jumped on that. So asked me to put together some concepts and what originally I thought was going to be, you know, a single uh, PDF file as a bonus to um, to all the, the Kickstarter backers developed into four and then obviously it morphed into the conflict on into the complex which we have now the thing about that has been i've been writing this for for four years or so basically ever since the kickstarter ended i started investing time and effort trying to figure out the the right tone and the voices and, and how to do the presentations and which agencies which organizations i wanted to focus on so um at the time i was living in winnipeg and i remember pretty much every night trying to make deadlines. Um, and these were largely self-imposed deadlines on my part, but trying to, to make sure that I was writing every day and getting stuff out. And I turned it into Shane and, you know, other stuff went on. There were other priorities and, uh, and they, they kind of languished there for a bit. And then, then we'd come back and Shane was like, okay, this stuff is good. And he'd edit it and we'd come back. The real problem though, was over a four year process, there was a change in administrations. And there was all new leadership that went into pretty much every one of those agencies. And periodically, every three or four months, I would have to go back and re-edit. You know, I don't remember how many agencies are out there now, but it was, you know, at the time it was 20 and it, it kept creeping up. And so for, you know, the last couple of years, I keep having to go, I kept having to go back to those files and open them up and just stare at the same words I had written, you know, uh, and edited multiple times and then find out that, you know, the, uh, I don't know, um, the NNSA, the uh, National Nuclear Safety Administration, um, decided that they were going to roll two of their different bureaus into a single bureau and rename it. And then I would have to go back in and change all that. Um, so at some point, I, I Shane just came to me and was like, we've got a Fisher cut bait. We have got to get this out now. Otherwise, they're going to keep changing stuff on us. And so they they released an errata for ICE in the agents' handbook because because like a like a year after the game came out, it was it went from no one cares about it to it's on the front page of every newspaper in America. Nobody, nobody wants to play them anymore. Oh, they're still awesome. And in fact, I've worked with with some really good CBP and, and ICE guys. But like that was born of Shane coming to me and saying, "Hey, can you double check? Because I think there's been a couple changes." And, you know, at that time, I was like, yeah, that's totally reasonable. Let's totally get into that. And then, you know, three months later, Shane has to come back and be like, and I think they changed this. So it was, I'm really, really happy that the complex has made it into people's hands, into the backers' hands now. We'll be out to the larger public soon. Um, just for the fact that I, I don't think I can stare at those agencies any longer. Well, now you get to stare at new agencies like Marsh Technologies, right? Well, tell you what, I think... The part of that is the agent's handbook gave us a really good base of what agencies were the most likely to be played. You didn't give us, you know, nobody's going to be playing Office of Export Enforcement just to throw one out there. So I think what we saw with the original Delta Green was a lot of that stuff that wasn't needed. Now we have the base and then we're getting more as time goes on. But you have a point. I still one. I still miss the, the postal inspection services sample character from the old Delta Green book. They were pretty cool, right? Like I there was a part of me that really wanted to put that in. I had a character who played a USPIS guy and hit, like their jurisdiction is insane. And so every time I, I put a roadblock up, he would just be like, Hey, I think someone mailed someone to suspicious of this address and now I have full authority to go check it out. Let's go boys. 
I was like, damn you. <laughs> Just carry all your uh, probable cause around with you in a self-sealed envelope and then plant it at the scene. He did that. He, he took yeah. an envelope that looked suspicious and he threw it over a fence and he was like, gotta go check it out, boys. But that's what's great kind of about the Delta Green setting, right? Is these, these really off-the-wall agencies or character concepts really find a home here as opposed to even other modern settings, right? And one of the things that's really important to that and that I really appreciated is in the agent's handbook and the complex, each agency also has a quick write-up of what like the agency culture is like and what kind of your attitude is towards other agencies if you're working this kind of group. So those were the best parts to write because some of it, I mean, it is a ton of research. And when you do, you know, research on six or seven agencies, you can remain fresh. When you're on your like 25th agency, it's, that was tough. Like there was part of it that's, that slog. And, and a big part of my writing process is to be really excited about what I write. Um, and so that was a real push for me near the end is to make sure that I, I stepped away and then I came back and I remained interested. But those pure, those portions, the portions about like, what it's really like to work for this agency. And um, and yeah, what is the relationship to other agencies? That part was fun. And that's what really kept me going. I, I love it in the agent's handbook where it says that all the other agencies view the DEA as unstable cowboys who are too trigger happy, except the ATF. That line just made my day. I, I, I really appreciate hearing that. And the, the feedback has been generally good. I, I will fully take responsibility that... You know, there's going to be stuff in there, especially when the complex gets out, because it got into agencies I'm not as familiar with. Um, I did it. I did. I can't innumerable amount of, of interviews and and research on my own. I'm going to get something wrong or something's going to be changed out from under me. But so far, the the feedback has been really, really positive. Um, and and even the people that have brought up the mistakes and so far in the complex, I actually haven't gotten one. There was a couple in the, the agent's handbook that I made, it was like, yeah, you'd have to be really, really far on the inside to be able to understand that particular nuance. Um, so a lot of people were giving me a bit of a pass and being like, you did you did about as well as anybody from the outside could ever do. Well, you're never, you're never going to be perfect. You can't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know? Oh, that's absolutely right. Okay, I was going to ask about, because um, you, you've got you've got your federal agencies, and then you've also got your, your contractors and your private sector people with uh, stuff like RAND. Is that, a, is that a similar process to, to research like a Northrop Grumman or whatever? Those were, um, at the risk of sounding like my, my, my day job, both easier and harder to do. Um, because I'm, uh, you know, I work in a federal agency, you know, you can throw a federal agency at me and I kind of got a baseline of how they look. I've only ever worked in a federal agency. I, I basically joined the State Department's um, out of, of grad school. I worked as a movie theater manager for a couple of years, not, not even a couple of years, but for the better part of a year and then switched over to this. So my understanding of like how the private sector works is actually really, really weak. Um, and I had to do a lot of interviews and luckily I'm in the, the Northern Virginia DC kind of catchment. So I was able to talk to a lot of people. Um, but, uh, so on one hand, it's easier to find information and do research on them. On the other hand, um, it's not my comfort area in terms of writing. I have a uh, question, actually. What are a couple of the agents that, uh, agencies that you uh, didn't get to include that you wish you did? So uh, part of it was just like like the perfect being the enemy of the good. At some point, you've just got to stop adding agencies, and, and we did. Um, we had to start editing the stuff. Uh, we added um, 
interior, and I really, I really would have liked to have done forestry a bit more, um, and done a bit more of like the interior forestry parks type of organizations, um, because their mandates were really quite fascinating um, and and just a lot of fun. I would have liked to have done a little bit more on that. You know, I would have liked to have found uh, a few more private companies um, that were distinct from like BAH and Khaki um, and Rand that I didn't. I guess I guess putting in North of Grumman, Lockheed, Boeing, they all kind of run together. Yeah, that was actually one of the challenges between, um, you know, like Khaki and BAH and, you know, SAIC. Like all of those, you know, contractors, um, they largely do very similar stuff. Um, even Constellus slash Blackwater is really organizationally and from a, a organization mission perspective uh, and the services that they offer to the federal government aren't that distinct. There, there, are dis- there are important nuances and specializations that each one of them have that I tried to make sure to push to, uh, to the fore in the write-ups in, in the complex. Um, but yeah, after a while, they started being a bit samey. But I, I will admit, you know, from my perspective, I was a little worried that that's, that was coming out of my writing because I'm not as familiar with the private sector as I am federal agencies. I mean, yeah, the only ones I was really missing in that department, which is what you said were places like the Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, where there's so many different places to manage and jurisdictions to go around that I thought it'd be an interesting dynamic. But another time, I suppose. Yeah, and that's it. Like, it was just a, a fish or gut bait time. And uh, But you're not wrong. Like, if and if anybody out there you know, um, wants to explore one of those, they do have some really interesting mandates and very expansive. A lot of them are able to carry firearms. And the fun thing about those, like Fish and Wildlife and, and Interior Forestry Service, is Americans don't get them, you know? Um, and so you can saunter in as a character and throw around a mandate and confuse the NPCs probably long enough to be able to get your stuff done. What's the phrase... If you can't baffle them with no, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. Well, welcome to Delta Green. With regards to inclusion, I like what's in there because um, I'm thinking of all the characters that I've had that were from agencies that weren't in the original uh, text. So uh, ATF, one of my first characters in there. Uh, I've had two characters from Rand Corporation because um, I think they're a lot of fun. I think it's basically like if America decided to buy its defense research from a James Bond villain. And I think that's I think that's great. And so I got two characters there. Um, the one thing I was thinking about that's really hard to cover is the offices of the Inspector General of all the various federal agencies. You've got guys from like Department of Justice that can carry firearms and investigate things, or you know parts of I think the healthcare apparatus have them. And that's a lot of fun because you're the federal agent who believes the federal agent. But are you gonna really gonna do an? But are you really gonna do an OIG character for every single? Yeah, that would be madness. Um, a couple of them, you're right, like would have been interesting to kind of build out as offices. Um, but yeah, like that was part of the other thing is, you know, just there's so much territory to cover in terms of the various offices and character uh, options that at some point I had to limit myself. Um, you know, I we cut a decent amount of stuff out of the Coast Guard just because I kept going and being like, man, there's so much that these guys can do. And I, you know, I, I know I'm somewhat speaking to the choir uh, in terms of Coast Guard. But, You're correct. Um, if only you knew a guy. Yeah, right? But, you know, like, one of my favorite stories was when I was first joining the State Department, uh, one of the people that was also joining, uh, and this was about in 2001, 2002, 
And, uh, and she was a Coastie. She was a recently retired Coastie, and she stands up and she says, I, I've been part of the Coast Guard. We're the only branch of the military with a job. And I found that. Ooh, that's Yeah, that's fun. kind of stuck with me. That it, it was better. It was funnier, you know, um, you know closer to, to 9-11. It's less so now. Um, <laughs> but but that's always stuck with me as there's, there's a decent amount of truth in that. And then when you delve into the Coast Guard as an outsider looking into it um, – it's they're just it's it's a fascinating organization without near enough. I mean, every no agency has enough resources. Any agency that claims that they have enough resources is, is probably lying. Um, but the Coast Guard in particular, you know, is fascinating for the the gamut of skills and some really interesting skills you can't find anywhere else. And I was really happy that we included the Coast Guard's one. I'd say NNSA actually was one of my other favorite ones. To put in there, um, there were a couple others. ATF needed to be, you know, like it was, it was, it should have probably been in the agent's handbook. Uh, we just couldn't fit it because of space. It's it's one of their core competencies, shooting cultists. I mean, one of the, the only one I've had questions about was the how you're going to work out the NCTC since they're such a little known organization. So NCTC's uh, another one that I've got like very strong personal opinions because I've worked with them in the past. Um, and if, if you're going to see any of my personal biases come out, it's probably going to be an NCTC. Oh, that's interesting to hear. Cause that was one of the more interesting ones to me in the complex. That was one I had at the front of my mind when I mentioned the write-up of how someone in the NCTC views other agencies. But at the same time, from a character perspective, again, NCTC could be really, really fascinating because they serve as this interesting, you know, um, catch-all for all the other intelligence agencies and and a lot of the law enforcement agencies like if you're an nctc or if you're a character in nctc there's a you you have an excuse to be to be touching any one of the other agencies and that alone makes them really interesting this is something that uh i i went to to um an undergrad you know did, did uh political science, whatever, they would occasionally bring in like people from the intelligence world to talk to us. And all they ever talked about was, here's an, here's an intelligence agency. They created it to be, to synthesize intelligence from other agencies. And it just became another one on the pile. And then 10 years later, they did it again. Wasn't there an XKCD cartoon about this? Yeah, exactly. We've they've 10 standards. That's ridiculous. We need one to, to, uh, to solve everyone's use cases. Next panel. Oh, 11 standards. That's ridiculous. But it's great because it gives you all this grist if you're playing a game like Delta Green to say, well, you know, which which alphabet soup agency do I want to be from today? Yeah, exactly. And and just the amount of intel that NCTC both realistically and theoretically should have access to as a character option, that can be, I, I imagined it as, as a particularly empowering thing um, because, yeah, there's nothing that the, you know, from a, a setting standpoint that the U.S. intelligence agencies touch on that theoretically couldn't be passed to you as part of nctc see when i read the nctc write-up to me it felt like a place i would stick uh a player or sorry an agent that uh got in trouble at work because uh, i think in the complex explicitly says if you're here you're either close to retirement or you screwed up yeah so so that's where that bias comes out but that's in my you know in in the research that i did that's kind of what it is and you got to think about it to to some extent too is you know, um, this is true in the military. It's true in intelligence agencies. It's true in any of the federal bureaucracies. At a point where you're outside of your organization, your chances for promotion plummet, right? And and a lot of people are driven by promotions. 
Um, and so if you're working for the CIA or the FBI or any other of the, those alphabet soup organizations and you're put over to NCTC, your chance for advancing is really, really low. The only reason that we see purple billets in the military is because the Goldwater Nichols Act is forcing the military to still do it. I think, you know, um, looking back on it, man, I'm, I'm getting super wonky, sorry. But um, but looking back on it, you see that the military is, is a better organization now because of what Goldwater Nichols has done in terms of purple billets. And when I say purple billets, I mean, you know, forcing army guys to have to serve in a Navy billet or in a joint billet. Um, or in a joint position, um, and that our military is better at sharing information and understanding cultures for it better, the intelligence side hasn't quite adopted that yet. And so NCTC ends up being, and, and even just secundments into other agencies, still is seen as as something either you absolutely have to do and you're going to just write off those couple years in terms of, of promotions, um, or it's a place you go because you're not getting it done in your parent organization. I do want to point out the notable absence of Sodexo, government food contractor. I think you could have found some column issues for them. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, uh, you know, there was a, I, I kind of, uh, imagined, um, I was watching during Christmas. There's, uh, um, there's this, this show that, that came on, um, and it was about like the, uh, Santa Claus's elves and how a couple of them are like set up for like prepping the house for whenever Santa Claus comes down and they're all like special forces elves. And I've always kind of imagined writing up those guys in the Delta green fashion. That'd be, that'd be a good thing to release just as like a two page little PD, like bonus PDF, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, and, and the, the, the show's called prep and landing and it's, it's like, um, I guess they model the uh, the guys on the aircraft carriers in terms of you know bringing Santa in and stuff like that. And I thought that'd be kind of fun to release out. And and maybe when I've got a little bit of time, I'll just put that out for for the uh, for fans of Delta Green out there to throw at at their you know at their games to try to throw everybody off. So you mentioned uh, you know post complex world you're working on some stuff for the Deep State book and March Technologies. I know one of the um, I'm going to say complaints, but I think it's mainly just because we aren't given enough Marsh Technologies to play with. In most of the games I've seen Marsh Technologies involved in, they're a neat thing that you can't investigate. If you try to investigate them, your handler calls you and says, knock it off. So it becomes not that fun. Yeah, so um, yeah, so I've we've got that, that draft done. Um, Shane's looking at it, the group's looking at it, and there's a bunch of other stuff that's going on in terms of, of, of Deep State. Um, so yeah, I, on that end, it's been fun to work on the March technology stuff, um, partly because it's been a departure from, from the complex, right? The complex, as I was saying, was so much, it was so focused on research. Um, and, and this was a lot more in terms of, you know, for lack of a better word, but basically creative writing, allowing my, you know, kind of explore, um, what an organization could look like, um, in the, in the Delta Green setting. See, uh, like like Kevin was saying, when you see them in other scenarios, it's usually just like, hey, what are you doing? And then the uh, case officer slaps the agents on the wrist, says, don't do that. But uh, what I really... Yeah, I don't, I, I don't want them to be the boogeyman any longer. And I think that's what, what Deep State is going to offer is um, taking taking March out of the shadows and presenting them as as an interesting adversary and i will say you know like in, in terms of what i have written so far for for march they are written to be adversaries 
That's good because uh, I'd, I'd really like some material because at this point I either have to, you know, steer players away from something which isn't like super fun for them or I just have to like recycle old majestic assets, which I guess uh, kind of might be the point there. Um, you're right on that, right? We're just we are kind of stuck right now with March being this this shadowy organization and that isn't fun. And so I know that that the group really wants to, to push them to the fore. Um yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. We can talk a bit more. There's uh, there's there's other material like that, and 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 I know that, that this is probably not stuff that's in your basket in Delta Green, where um, there's there's a lot of stuff, for example, in Reverberations that references um, its plot hooks for content that hasn't been written yet, and so it kind of lands you in the same boat where, where uh, you get this. It's it's intended to be this introduction to something that is just not ready. But something that I do like about March is that it seems to be the idea is to make it a bit more interactive in terms of the scale because one of the problems when you look at the old stuff about majestic is that the amount of retribution you get for just something as simple as looking up a number in a phone book could be game ending and so it calls to the question okay how are you supposed to play with this if it's so powerful that it literally kills you for looking up the name outlook group so one of the things i like about march is that in in the, the, there's um there's there's all kinds of stuff in in the agents uh, the handler's guy but one thing that i did like about it is that it tried to communicate that it was very fragile. Yeah, and so, okay, um, my big caveat on this is um, that the draft that I have of March is is super rough right now and has not gone through, you know, a major edit by any of the core Delta Green partnership guys. And so all the stuff that I have written thus far potentially gets excised. Um, so for everybody listening, for you guys as well, um, this may not survive contact with with Shane or with Dennis or Scott because they have a vision for this um, that may not completely match what I've written so far. But for the, what I the way I approached March is um, I really don't want it to be another Pentex to steal uh, the term from Werewolf of the Apocalypse, and and I don't want it to be one of the organizations or one of the, you know, the mega corps from Shadowrun or anything along those lines like that, that stuff has been done to death. And so I was really, I, I took some time to really try to figure out what about March or what about that type of organization would make it feel distinct and different and more importantly, uh, usable by, uh, by any game master um, that's playing in Delta green, or even if they wanted to pull it into to something else. Um, and so how to make it also distinct from, from Majestic 12, right? Because Majestic had, I, I don't want it to be just, you know, the automatic successor. I don't want it to be Majestic 12 reborn. I want it to be something distinct, distinctly different to be carrying on the legacy of Majestic 12, um, but not be completely, you know, beholden to that image. So the thing I sat around for a while, I talked with Shane and I talked with Dennis. It was actually over Gen Con. Not, it was almost immediately after the interview that we did with you guys that day. And, um, and I, I gave my, my general pitch to, to Shane and Dennis and they said, you know what, do it. Um, and then we'll look at it and we'll see how good it is or not. Um, but my, my general pitch was uh, incels. And I wanted to approach the survivors of the MJ-12 disaster. Why did they survive and how do they feel about it? And and at the time, incels were in the, the media and stuff like that. And so I, I was kind of reading about them. And so a lot of the leadership and a lot of what uh, my approach to March involved was bitterness. That they had watched Majestic 12 put in 
decades of clandestine, quiet service from their perspective to the American government that they had, you know, Justin Croft in particular had given everything um, in an effort to protect the United States from, you know, quote unquote, the threat of the Greys. And, and, you know, they had allies in Congress, they had allies in every administration, they had, you know, uh, uh, a black bag budget, they had everything going for them. And then when the shit hit the fan, all their allies disappeared. And they were brought down from the inside by the most improbable series of events. And that all happened because, because of the allies and the, the, the structure and the, um, and the, the foundation that Majestic 12 thought it had for itself completely evaporated at the time that they needed it most. But they got their lunch money taken away by, by terrorists that believed in alien gods. Exactly. And so now, and so, you know, Majestic 12 was built as kind of this ancillary organization. And uh, um, they were built, you know, as, as this kind of front. Um, and I built a little bit of other stuff into them, at least in my take of Majestic 12, um, excuse me, of uh, uh, March Technologies. And, and those were the survivors. And again, kind of like what we were just saying about NCTC, you know, like if you were part of the core MJ-12 group, you weren't in March. The individuals that got sent over to March were there for a reason. Um, and it largely wasn't for good reasons. Either they could advance or they, you know, they weren't particularly trusted. Um, and so these are the people that survived the MJ-12 disaster. And, and they're incredibly bitter about it right now. Um, and, and that was kind of the core concept and, and my take of what March should be. And I built out from there. The other thing that, that I'm a big believer in, in terms of, of the games that I run for Delta Green and, and some of my writing that's gone into the, into the game, has been that ultimately everybody that encounters the mythos or you know, um, uh, any, anything of the, the unknown is going to be fundamentally broken at some point. If not on first contact, then definitely on second contact. If somebody has repeated contact with, with the unnatural, they're not going to come out of it mentally healthy. And so when you look at Delta Green, when you look at Majestic 12, and when you look at March in particular, um, you know, the individuals at the highest levels of that organization are also the ones that have had the most and the longest contact with the unnatural. And they should not be mentally healthy people. That raises an interesting point, which is you've kind of take like right now, my technologies is this like monolith that you can't investigate. And by giving them this kind of bitterness, it gives the players an interesting exploitive angle because you can exploit that bitterness and anger to, to either get intelligence or flip somebody. And that's very interesting. I think that could be a cool, cool little thing. I was going to say, no, I, I, that, that was, that's been my goal is, is that's the other thing is I want to make this as playable as possible. One of my other design principles, when I come to any particular writing, even like the complexes, I'm trying to give as many hooks and as many tools to both the players and the game masters um, to use. And so when I, when I'm writing, whether it's March or when I think, you know, anything else, um, I, I want to have a specific purpose to every single paragraph that I write. I don't like filler paragraphs and, and I'm, you know, the, Kevin, you were just mentioning, you know, like the, the weaknesses and the exploitation that is all through the stuff that I have been, that at least my take again on March. That's really good. That's really refreshing to hear, to know that you're fighting against like not just humans, but like flawed humans, that uh, it's not some 
completely unapproachable pillbox with guys with machine guns and murder holes that are just going to light anybody up that gets too close at it's some of the older material not to throw too many rocks it's some of the older material just has those uh big shadowy enemies that are completely unapproachable like you couldn't even ever dream of taking down majestic 12 yeah if you or a, the future perfect is one that people complain about a lot for that, where it's this it's this treasure box full of really cool content, and it's designed to frustrate your attempts to interact with it at every turn. Yep, and that's that's at least my approach to marches. No, it's every one of them is you know like from the leaders because I, I did write up a lot of the personalities, but even the 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 various offices within it, they're broken. They're not healthy. Um, they're super rich, and they've got a lot of resources at them, but it it. A competent player and a competent agent shouldn't take that long to be able to find the holes to really disrupt that organization. There will absolutely be repercussions, right? They've got they've got too wide of a mandate and too much money, um, and the U.S. government is too deeply beholden to March Technologies for there not to be repercussions. But that's also something I want the characters and the players to understand is, um, yeah, you absolutely can potentially even bring down that organization. Um but to do so, you're probably going to have to kiss your ass goodbye. And potentially, a lot of those bonds that you've built up as well are going to have to go bye-bye as well. That's one of the recurring themes of Delta Green, isn't it? The uh, what, what, what cost does victory come with? You know, what are you going to sacrifice? What are you going to give up? Yeah, and I, you know, the adventures that, that, that already exist for Delta Green are really good about that. Um, but, you know, I, you know, not to, again, cast stones or anything, but um, it's sometimes frustrating to watch other people playing um, and and they you know really really try to avoid all those repercussions which is just so built into the game and so built into the stories of which the games are based on um, it, the best games that I've ever seen are those players that really embrace the repercussions as bad as they may be and uses that as a stepping stone for some really really interesting stories so one of the other things that I was I, I've been conceptualizing with March Tech, and again we'll see if it survives contact with with what Shane and Dennis and Scott and John think about their vision of, of Delta Green. Um, but the other one is I March Tech, I you know I kind of envision it as no longer American. Um, one of the things when we say you know kind of they're emotionless, um, a lot of the the leadership I think has transcended the idea of nationalism. And they look again at Majestic 12 as one of the real uh, the points of failure for Majestic 12 is that they were too invested in being American. And so March, March has been trying to, in my vision, um, build themselves away from being beholden to the United States government. Now, they're completely comfortable with the U.S. government being beholden to them, um, but they are trying to amass power and influence and especially wealth to be independent so that um, if things go bad again, they don't have to rely on those Congress people or the administration or the NSC to ride to their rescue because that clearly didn't work. So this version of, of March is more about how they can try to be independent, but that makes them also, in my view, even a bit scarier because their connections to the rest of society have basically withered away. Um, they, they see themselves as a kingdom unto themselves. 
um, and absolutely beholden to nobody else. Whereas as Majestic 12 at least would be reined in because they were fighting for, you know, mom and baseball and apple pie, at least conceptually. March in this version, they don't give a flying fuck about any of that any longer. They're in it for themselves. That's fascinating, really, considering their origins. But it also is logical considering what happened to Justin Croft. I guess my interpretation of Majestic 12 had been the patriotism angle had already been somewhat lip service, that they had already considered themselves and formed themselves into a cabal above democratic politics. And that's fair. And I think, you know, again, in this in this version, like one of the characters that I was working up is basically like venerating Justin Croft as not quite a saint or anything, but basically like Croft was wronged. Um, you know, he he had the right of it. And um, if it wasn't for all these, you know, um, all these backbiters, uh, he was going to build Majestic 12 into something really, really amazing and useful. Um, And so this kind of cult of personality built around Majestic Croft that is now, you know, taken root uh, within a core number of the leaders of uh, March Technologies. I think one of the things I liked about New Delta Green's direction is that in old Delta Green, there were a lot of NPCs that were just zero sand. They were already um, completely and totally 100% insane, and yet had this, you know, it, it, it created this impression that being zero sand didn't really change much, because they would, there would be a description of a, of a normal person, and then it'd say, oh, he's a zero sand, he's got this, you know, completely, permanently, irrevocably insane. So one of the things I like about New Delta Green is that more of the people in the game are in that middle stage, or they're in late stages, but they're not completely a... In, off at the end, where they're still f- somewhat functional. Totally agree, right? And that's those are interesting characters. Um, you know, I it's it's those people that are on the verge of you know from a game from a system point of view, but are on the verge of losing like all of their bonds, but still have one or two, and they're desperately clinging to them. Those are the more interesting characters from my perspective. So I want to circle back uh, for a brief moment. You started t- started to delve into the world of bonds, and I wanted to. It's been on our minds uh, locally recently speaking of broken characters yeah so generally i tend to look at bonds as simply a mechanical ablative wound they're just names that i shove sanity damage onto but what kind of turned me around a little bit was i was running a game and i gave out pre-gens and i gave one of my old characters as a pre-gen and he has two bonds he has sapphire his stripper girlfriend and ruby his other stripper girlfriend which i wrote down it's just kind of a lark, but when I gave it to someone who'd never seen the character, they immediately had this vision of how this person was, and it was. I, it made me think about bonds as a way to inform character decisions and not not just a blade of wounds. But I know you mentioned you have some thoughts on bonds, and uh, why don't you tell us about them? Yeah, so I I am completely biased, so understand that. But um, I really do like the bond system, and. I don't think you're wrong. If you just want to look at it from a system standpoint, they are absolutely a blade of armor. Um, and at least when when I had my my input into that process, that that's what they are. Because um, from my perspective in a real world setting, that that's what bonds are in in many ways. They are those tethers that allow individuals to weather the worst emotional and and um, and mental storms that come their way. If, you know, translating it into, into effectively a mathematical equation, which is what a role-playing game does, it, it does come off as a blade of armor. But, um, 
But again, in the real world, I don't think they're that different. You know, like when any one of us has a really, really bad week or hears, you know, really, really bad news, what do we do? We go to what are mechanically represented as bonds. You know, if you find out that a parent is dying, you know, maybe you go to your sister or your brother for consolation or, um, or you start drinking. And one of those other bonds, like your sister or your brother, ends up having to be burned because you're not paying the, the right amount of attention to it. And basically, from, uh, from again, from a mechanical sanity point perspective, I think it does a pretty good job of reflecting that. It's, it's heady stuff, though, too. I mean, you know, writing, when you're getting into sanity and bonds and stuff like that, it also becomes, from a writer perspective, sometimes really deeply uncomfortable, right? Because as I'm telling you guys... Um, you know, I firmly believe that anybody that has any contact with the unnatural, if not on the first time, then, then the second or third is going to be deeply flawed or broken. So there's only so many ways that you can write that flaw or that break that isn't outright disgusting, right? Um, we see a lot of characters, we explore a lot of characters that have things like, you know, drug addiction or alcoholism or things along those lines or, you know, psychotic breaks. And in many ways, those are the best available options for us as players and game masters and those behind the setting. Because the other parts of, of the game, and it does get quite dark, is, you know, uh, violence against other humans. Um, and, and not like, you know, going out and defeating cultists, but like what, you know, from a perspective, again, from a writer, you know, the reality is a lot of these people should be abusers, Um a lot of these people should be doing some very, very horrid things and at a bare minimum have some really horrible views of the world around them. And and it puts me in an uncomfortable place sometimes having to write that stuff. I do like, though, that mechanically um, the game doesn't shy away from that stuff. We are able to just use those bonds and you can write them off and not have to deal with it. And that is completely fine and absolutely everybody's prerogative. But there is this storytelling aspect to those bonds that is a deeper um, and a, a, a much more challenging role-playing experience than you're going to find in a lot of other games. Delta Green, to my knowledge, is the only game where you can mechanically represent having a really horrible day, having some really bad stuff happen to you, and then going home and hitting your kid. That's, that's the only game on the planet that would do that. And and I, th I think that, 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 that obviously that's that's an, an oversimplification, but I, I think that is that is why one of one of the reasons why people come back to this game is because it explores uh, things that you don't find elsewhere, at least not expl not not explored in a particularly mature or sophisticated manner. I'm certain that there's games out there that do it for do it in like a uh like as a as a as a goof or like as a yeah as as like um you know a meme or something, but. Not as a ser not as a serious mechanic to reflect hurting other people because you're hurting inside, and that's tough, you know. Like as and there is an assumption that that Delta Green and the guys behind Delta Green have is that we are going to be smart and mature and intelligent about this stuff. Um, and and I appreciate you know as as both a fan and having a small role in, in helping to build this um, that it you know it it does approach it from a a mature standpoint. It, it's still not completely realistic and it shouldn't be. Um, but it, it doesn't shy away from some of those really dark questions. Um, 
and and bonds is one process, one part of that process. So we we talked about it a little bit in an episode that's already aired about bonds. Uh, the question was, uh, you have skills that are quantifiable. You know, forty percent in a skill is like an undergraduate degree. Eighty percent is like world expert. Um, how can someone who just thinks of uh, bonds as like ablative sanity damage? How can they turn that into something more meaningful? Um, can we? have sort of quantification is a person with 18 charisma and a bond score of 18 like a happier character than someone who only has eight charisma but still has a bond score eight um i don't know i I just think it'd be neat to kind of get some insider perspective from uh someone who had a hand in creating it on that so i don't think i'm going to give you the answer that you're hoping for on this one because i think it really does boil down to the amount of time that the player is willing to invest into role playing and to actually paying attention to their character, um, and and there's just there's there's no two ways around it. You know, I I was actually talking with a friend not too long ago about, and I think you guys were talking about it, if not on the the previous uh, in the previous podcast, but maybe one or two ago about the the tendency to keep asking for roles by the game master. You know, like if, if you failed on this roll, 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 you know, in the same scene. And, and from my perspective, you know, I'm going to be very judgmental. Um, that's not the way that skills should be used. Um, but that comes down to the, the particular approach of the GM. Um, and, and just like, you know, like, you know, representing mechanically happiness or anything along those lines, that really does come down to the role of the player to define and getting too far into that particular hole, uh, I think starts taking agency away from players. No, I, I get it. And that's something we see because we run a lot of games I and mean, we see a lot of different player attitudes towards it. There's some people that really approach the uh, the downward spiral, like the really beautiful downward spiral you can build when a character comes into contact with the unnatural when he does bad things. Um, and there's the, the consequences and the fallout of the choices that they make. But then there's other characters who refuse to do anything other than, uh, you know, absolute survival. They're afraid to embrace that failure aspect of it. Damn right. Exactly. We we have a couple of them here on the podcast. So you can throw all the rocks you like at me. My glass house is already broken. But, you know, like that that reflects reality to some extent. Right. There are those people that that spend the extra time or get really emotionally wrecked. Because, because you know, the, the, the real life equivalent of a bond withers away. And there are those other people out there who are, who have isolated themselves or who are relatively comfortable with allowing a bond to wither away. You know, humanity approaches these things differently. So it's, it's not that unreasonable, I think, for, for players to approach it differently as well. Um, just, 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 just to be clear, I'm in the game. I'm not saying that in real life I'd be un, unperturbed. If, oh, no, no, we know. all know you're a sociopath, man. It's, it's fine. <laughs> well, well, just, just making sure we're on the same page. Uh, don't worry, I, I, I'm judging heavily. Um, so that's 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 good. That's what our show's for. Uh, so I think Delta Green's really, I think Delta Green's really great because you can have both those players. You can even have both those players in the same party or the same campaign. Uh, the ones who are super pragmatic, ultra practical, and then the people who are like, oh yeah, fuck me up, fuck me up some more. Honestly, it's easier if you have that mix because if everyone wants to be a big ham, uh, no pun intended, Thank you. then uh, there's only one. Well, well, not only there's only one, but he's also more on my side with the ablative sand armor. Um, but I think it's better if you have. Um, 
you know, one or two people who are super into it and then other people who are willing to, to, to take a more detached view because um, maybe it's just because I run an open table where I can't get to know every character, but usually I only ever see like one or two good opportunities maximum to make a really strong connection with a character's bond to what happened to them. That's dead on, right? And I mean, that's just the nature of gaming is that there tends to be one or two individuals that are really, really into whatever game that is, you know, that, that are interested in system mastery, um, that are interested in exploring, you know, the, the their character psyche, and they're going to take up a lot of table time. And if you have an, and you know, we've all been in that situation. Well, maybe, maybe not. But you know, if you're if you're at a table where everybody wants to spend that time, that could be a twelve hour process. And man, I, you know, my games last four hours, and when four hours comes up, we're done. Oh, um, that's something you and Melon agree upon because uh, he always says that. Uh, what is it? Game sessions are a very scarce resource. Yeah, game sessions are a scarce resource and must be spent on the parts of the game that are the most interesting, meaningful, fun, compelling, etc. You and I are going to get along just fine. All marshmallows, all marshmallows, no oats. From my my perspective as a writer, um, and on the various stuff, you know, if you ever looked at it, um, I'm I'm a big believer in distinct beginning, middles, and ends. Um, I I you know when I run games, uh, Delta Green or whatever else it is. Um, I, I generally have an idea. I know what that beginning is going to look like. I, I, I got a really strong feel on that. I have a relatively good idea what the middle is going to look like. I have no idea what the end is going to look like, but I push my sessions to get to, I approach them as TV shows and they can be episodic and they're going to build on each other. But by the end of that hour, or in my case, in that four hour slot, I want everybody to walk away with a feeling that there has been an ending of sorts. And that's the tough part because oftentimes, uh, just if you're thinking about the typical structure of an RPG session, Delta Green Investigation, the, maybe the, the climax, the best parts, are often quite likely to be at the very end. So that moment of, of uh, catharsis, the leftovers when you have to deal with the consequences of your actions, the home scene with the bonds, is compressed into the time slot where people are realizing that they need to go home because it's been six hours. Email's a wonderful thing. Which is, it's just sad because I always want that, uh, oh man, you guys better give me a forensics role or uh, get rid of that body. But by the time it comes to do that, it's like, oh, well, you know, I got a thing I got to get to. No, you don't get away. You don't get away like that, Scott Free, motherfucker. You get back here. Yeah, there's still work to be done. It's the same question of like, we're still in the dungeon after five hours. You know, do we, do we start the next session here or do we have to get out somehow? Yeah, right. So, uh, and that's, that's I think, one of the weaknesses that Delta Green has from a system standpoint is uh, it throws a lot of stuff at you, but it doesn't necessarily help you decide what the priorities should be. There's a good, I think, I think one of the things that um, I've always wanted to expand on, but I've always come up with excuses to do other things instead, is there's a table in the back of the agent's handbook that's like a, just a fast tradecraft table. Like here's, you know, here's get rid of a body, friend, defrenzicize stuff fix up your social media, whatever, delete, you know, establish an alibi. And that's a, just a table of die rolls. And I think that for these use cases where you end up having to compress the, the crime scene cleanup or what have you into, a, you know, 10, 15 minutes, I think having having that built out a little bit so you could resolve it faster, make a couple of meaningful decisions, toss a couple of dice, you know, it's maybe a risk-reward mechanic, I think that would be a real value add for those types of situations because it sounds like I'm not the only one who has this problem. It's it's true, but on the other hand, um, to play devil's advocate, it is selling all of us short because again, like we we're talking about with bonds and and the spiral 
you know, and how other games don't approach those difficult and interesting questions. Other games don't approach how do you clear off the body, right? It's it's just, you know, and that's something that's been built up into us as role players is that, you know, once the violence happens, things get cleaned up quite easily and you can move on. Delta Green ha- gives that opportunity um, both mechanically to a lesser extent, but also from the setting point of view where it's front and center to try to take care of that stuff, to force the players to have to think about the consequences, not only of, you know, of shooting the NPC and and potentially murdering them, um, but then also having the other stuff to do to try to keep that lie going. Um, And when we don't explore that, it's, it is an opportunity lost. It's a, it's a competitive advantage that Delta Green has opposed to other games that we don't necessarily explore enough. They sprinkle some crack on them. <laughs> you cut my drop piece. They're called ham sandwiches in the industry. Oh, they named it for you? <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, you just... If you get on the radio and you're like, hey, I need a ham I'm sorry to kill, to kill what was a genuinely like heartfelt statement about the nature of Delta Green with that. I was going to say, uh, I think that that's one of the... Uh, the proponents of Delta Green that uh, or one of the components of Delta Green that sets it apart from some of the other, uh, you know, investigative horror role playing games in the same vein. You've got the adaptation of violence and the adaptation to helplessness, and that's supposed to be able to uh, 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 quantify or uh, kind of explain the uh, way people may be prompted to feel about something. It's not always the case because people want to do gun stuff and violence their way out of situations, but. I do think that sets it apart from some of the other uh, bigger, uh, or, or, or no, I wouldn't say bigger, the other uh, investigative horror role-playing games that are out there. You could say bigger. It doesn't hurt anyways. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it is, it, it's an interesting, you know, discussion though, too, is if you can't dissuade your players from, you know, shooting the NPC in the face because it's the expeditious way out, well, suddenly it's no longer the expeditious way out because they've actually got to start dealing with the body. I, I've seen that that change in some of my players, right? Um, is if they know, and you know, it, it's the metagame process, but if they know if they're sitting at the table and they're going to shoot the NPC in the face, and now they're going to have to spend 10 to 15 minutes because I, as the GM, am not going to let them off the hook in dealing with that body, and I'm going to ask a whole series of hard questions, suddenly they're like, oh, okay, we'll just try to talk our way out of this. Um, I that's I can certainly sympathize with that. I have my, my group of Meat Space players still hasn't quite really grasped that and it's it's always funny to watch them deal uh, resort to violence to deal with a problem and then the problem just gets worse and worse and worse because they just keep digging and keep digging and keep digging and it's it's always really funny were any of you guys in the uh the gen con game with stoltzy um that shane ran no no i mean uh jake and i were down the hall but we weren't actually so to to kind of recap that one and it really hit home on some of the stuff that one went dark really quickly too and involved it you know bottom line was basically mass murder um and and the end of it like nobody felt good about it and and there was kind of this recollection afterwards in which you know shane was like because i he was playtesting i believe something one of his his adventures and he's like did this go wrong and, and I piped in afterwards and I said, no, I think this went absolutely right. There was a whole series of bad decisions. People resorted to violence too quickly. And now everybody feels bad about it. Like, that's not a bad thing. You know, as a, as a game master, if, if, if it takes making my players uncomfortable for wasting their time to have to clean up the body as the, the process for dissuading them from automatically resorting to violence, if that's what it takes... 
I'll do that. I had a character in the in the same uh, game I ran recently that was almost they were all new to Delta Green, and um, I, I look at it as a little bit of a failure on my part, but I did fix it. But one of the characters, uh, they, they did some violence, which is fine. Um, and I asked, you know, how many times have you lost sand due to violence? Because there's a chance you could be getting close to being adapted. And they're like, what does that mean? And I explained it. And they were like, oh, great. Then I can do more violence. And I was like, hang on, wait, wait, yeah. wait. <laughs> I feel like we need to just go over this one more time. Tell, tell them the story, Will. Tell them the story. I don't remember if I've, I don't think I've told the story on the air. But um, I, I was running a game for my, my real life table. And uh, I had this one guy, he's a good friend of mine. He's he's really into the numbers. He likes to, to crunch the numbers and optimize. And he had read the uh, the Asian handbook, the bit about adaptation to sand loss, but he hadn't read it all the way through. So he got as far as, oh, yeah, automatically passed sand rules. Great. I'm going to go out of my way to get adapted to, to violence in this, this game. Oh, boy. Which was funny because, one, he uh, dumped charisma because he didn't see the point of having bonds as a blade of sand armor because he's just going to be adapted anyway. And then when he finally got adapted uh, and I told him to grab a D6, he reduced his charisma of eight to two because he rolled a six on the dice. I thought you couldn't bring it below three. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to roll with it. It's, it's fine. Yeah. yeah you know what? That and doesn't it, sound like a fail. And then you, yeah, and then yeah. you lost the bonds, uh, because the, yes. the six, the, the bond had already been reduced. So you created that sort of cascading waterfall effect. It, and it, it was, was awesome. it was a great example of the, uh, the, the death spiral. It compressed into one single action. <laughs> thing about it, though, is I, I do have some sympathy for people who think that being adapted to violence is the optimal strategy, and I know that we've, we've, we've debated this back and forth for a long time now, but there are a lot of Delta Green scenarios where violence is the optimal solution. And that's and that's fair, right? Like and... I think I, I think when I when I, I, I took that big list, I think it was Glancy, but it might have been somebody else. Um, might have been Ken Scroggins, yes, actually. Scroggins. I don't remember who it was. It was, yeah, Scroggins. It was a man in black who made the list of all Delta Green scenarios. I went through it, and I think about a quarter of them were basically solvable by killing everything, killing everything, and breaking everyone. You know, and uh, you, you'd say that, right? And like I'm, I've been writing this one adventure. I think Kevin's been able to see it, and and it's 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 not great right now. But Melon would love it. Uh, <laughs> um, and 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 that's it, though. Is even you know from a writer's perspective, there's very few opportunities for us to really explore. You know, uh, victory from a non-violence perspective, and I think that's partly absolutely one hundred percent agree. But that's also partly because you you are dealing with the unnatural, right? And so our sorry, I've, I've thought about this a little bit. Is you know our psychological understanding and our ability to deal with the unnatural, um, it, it from a, on the mental plane doesn't work. You know, you can, ghouls are kind of like the closest you can get to it, but all the other mythos creatures that are running around in Delta Green are fundamentally unknowable by humans. We keep talking about that, right? So so it's really hard to outthink them. You certainly can't, can't out-charisma them the times that you encounter them. So the one thing that we share in common is physics. And so that's why violence works, quote-unquote works, in the Delta Green standpoint. So getting kind of back to like the discussion of March... I've been, you know, my vision of that was to present as many, um, again, flawed characters that can be approached from nonviolence standpoints. And in fact, in most cases, trying violence against them um, is is the suboptimal way of solving that particular problem. Violence is often a logical outcome because what else are you going to do? Ask them to go away nicely? There comes a point where the investigating and the persuading can help you do the violence, but it's hard to come up with a solution in a lot of these cases where 
if it was that easy to get rid of them without killing them, someone might have done it already. So, and that's you're, you're touching on another thing, um, and a couple of the characters that that I've written up. Um, the other thing that a lot of players don't understand is that the NPCs, or at least there's a handful of NPCs out there that should absolutely outviolence them. Um, and, and a lot of them don't get that, right? So like one of the characters that I have is basically, he, he's, he's a psychopath, like not basically he is, he is clinically a psychopath. Um, and if the characters go up against him, yes, he can absolutely be defeated because he's human, but his willingness to do horrible things is going to exceed anything that I think the players can come up with. And if a player is willing to out horrible that guy, you do not want to be playing with him. Uh, I think that you have uh, too high an opinion of the average Delta Green player. Uh, I I punish my players a lot, so maybe that that is. We'll see though, because I'm, I'm I'm interested to see now. But like, think about you know, like we, you know, doing doing research into psychopathy and, and sociopathy, right? Like they're scary, and and in the Delta Green world, there's more than a few of them running around. In fact, kind of one of the other one of the other things that I've kind of thought about Delta Green, right, is is Delta Green, we conceptually all get this, but um, Delta Green is absolutely its worst its its worst enemy, right? So Delta Green is conceptualized as fighting against the night, effectively. Um, and it does so by sending individuals who have already had contact with the unnatural to go have more contact with the unnatural. Who are the most likely individuals to, you know, to, to boil it down, but basically, who are the most likely individuals to join a cult and to start worshipping Neralhotep or the King in Yellow or any of those guys? It's the individuals that have the most contact with the mythos. So every time the every time Delta Green is sending out any one of your characters, they're running a huge giant risk because your characters are all the most likely individuals to be corrupted by the unnatural. I mean, we've seen already that Delta Green is this close to the baddies, how much worse they can get. Apparently a lot worse. Yeah, right? And 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 that's the other thing that's interesting to play with, with new players, right? You guys know this better than I do because you, you get more games in than I do. But is that exploration of Delta Green and not like, you know, the the you know uh, the handler coming in and just being all evasive and stuff like that like that's a trope and we all get into that but the the actual nature of delta green in which it is building cultists effectively is really quite fascinating and when when the players start to clue in on that that's a really interesting so suddenly you know the delta you know the program is you know that 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 blurred line between the program the cowboys it's, I, I've seen it more than a couple times now of watching players kind of jump to the other team into the Cowboys and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe those guys do have a point. Will, you said that this was what you thought the intended progression of the um, Night at the Opera scenario pack was. Yeah, actually, uh, not specifically Night at the Opera, but um, I did in a previous episode remark that from a lot of what we were uh, uh, reading about the way the program is or is organized essentially as you said chris i had suspected that that may have been a design goal to have agents get ground up by the meat grinder that is the program's operations division and then go oh you guys aren't uh horribly organized and 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 breeding mythos threats from the anti-mythos teams you're sending out sure sign me up so that's that's really interesting to hear you say that so so one of the other things that i built into you know again my conceptualization of march is that they're really really afraid of delta green um they've got, they've got a working relation 
Yeah, right? They've got a working relationship with Delta Green. They've got a working relationship with GRUSV8. Neither of them do they really like. They do it only because those are the two other organizations that deal with the unnatural. Um, and they're they're all in bed in this particular bed together. But yeah, my my a lot of the characters that I kind of wrote up, you know, or that that are associated with with March are deathly afraid of of Delta Green because again, those individuals that that are in Delta Green have survived multiple contacts with the unnatural. And again, looking at you know, like the system, the system tells us those individuals are broken. And if they're not presenting as psychopaths or sociopaths, or or deeply racist, or deeply misogynistic, or alcoholics, they're hiding it. And those are the really, really scary ones. Not that March is perfect, quite the opposite. In fact, they've kind of embraced their own. But it's like this entire circle of individuals who are deeply broken, and and distrustful of one another, and pointing figures. I mean, it's, it's basically a Quentin Tarantino final scene in which everybody's going to be holding guns to each other, and it's a question of who's going to pull the trigger first. I mean, it's the warriors versus the scientists in this variety. Delta Green is born in the in the death of the unnatural, and that's its goal is to get it to end. So when something like March is dealing with the unnatural, it seems completely different. Uh, I especially like how you said that March is afraid of Delta Green because that's not something I've really thought of. I always thought is March fucks off and does whatever it wants without Delta Green having any input. But there's so actually you- a dynamic there. Right. And so, you know, like if March has built itself into a position that it believes is unassailable, whether or not that's true, but right. Like, so they're, they're no longer nationalistic. They're unbeholden to other governments. They have, you know, a ton of money. Um, they're able to kind of operate on them on their own. So now they, they survey the world. Right. But who are the threats? Who are the threats left? And, and they look at the two organizations that they have a relationship with, you know, Delta Green and SV8. Um, because, at least, again, from some of the characters' perspectives, um, nobody else can bring them down. But at the same time, they can't do anything necessarily to Delta Green or SV8 because they absolutely require, you know, at the highest levels, they they know that their financial success is built on exploiting the mythos. And that's been a really hard thing uh, to approach in terms of, of March technologies is because I don't want that to be stupid. I don't want that again to be Pentex. And, and, and let me just say, I'm a huge fan of Werewolf the Apocalypse, warts and all. Um, but I don't want them, I don't want, what is it? It's Strauss that does the Atrocity Archives, right? And, and, and it can't be that. It can't be, you know, you know, ghoul eyes being able to see into the infrared and being plopped onto guns. It can't be that stuff. And that's been a real challenge is how do you approach the unnatural and the mythos, and from the studying perspective, make it the underpinnings of March's financial success without making it stupid. Yeah, uh, please don't make it a Hamato uh, Vision goggle meme. We've already we've already done that here. I will I will tell you uh, and, and look every one of you in the eye. At, at one point, I proposed something not unlike that. Shane had come to me and was like, "Hey, can you <laughs> can you do?" A, I came up with this, and, and I just looking back, it was a dumb dumb idea. But but I did propose it to Shane. It, so it so it'll never see the light of day. It's it's completely in the garbage. Yeah, it's totally in the garbage. Share it with us. Post it. Yeah, yeah tell us. <laughs> well, it, so let me just say. But Shane was like, "Yeah, no, um, you can go right for the Atrocity Archives if you really want." But uh, that's not that doesn't have a home here in Delta Green. <laughs> um, so no, and he's let me say that that sounds a lot worse than it actually came off. But he was like, "Yeah, this this just doesn't work." Um, what was it? It was. Uh, uh, 
I'm, it was, it was something to do with, uh, like an item that was kept in a leaden box. And every time you opened it, it basically, um, sent out a series of EMP pulses. I mean, effectively, that's what it was. And I think it was like the heart of a ghoul or something stupid. Um, Isn't that the thing from... Because I feel like PX Poker Night did that. Yeah, and I may have been channeling somebody else's work, and that may have been also part of the problem. Is but that was like a that was a real Delta Green scenario. Like that was. I mean, I mean, I guess I guess there is a lot of repudiating of the tone of '90s Delta Green that goes on now, where there's stuff back then that was a little silly. Yeah, and and that's the other part that's difficult with Delta Green, right? Is because that mythos stuff and the unnatural stuff is cool. It's interesting to explore, and if you keep it too far off of stage. It loses some of, I mean, the mystery is always there, but it, it does lose some of its appeal, right? And so that's been, that's the the part of like my version of March that's really not quite where it needs to be because I will sit on one of those ideas for the better part of, at, at a minimum of two weeks, rolling it over. I My commute to work is about an hour and a half one way and um, and I will, I will mull those ideas over and over and over and, and my baseline often is like, can I go to the Delta Green guys and present this and not be laughed at? Sounds like you come from a culture of rock throwing. Welcome to the team. It's mostly what we do on this show. Yeah. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this episode. Check back soon for the second half of our interview with Chris. Until then, follow us on Twitter at 9mm Retirement, Facebook 9mm Retirement, or find us on the R and Night of the Opera subreddit or Discord. Say hello, tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like, and remember, don't tell the president. <laughs>